My name is Rich Prattley. I'm the Samuel Crockett Chair in Diabetes Research, Medical Director at the Advent Health Diabetes Institute, and I'm also a researcher in Clinical Research and Diabetes Institute in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Advent Health is actually the largest single hospital in the country. We have 2,800 beds in Orlando. You may not have heard of that. Uh, and it's part of an organization that has 49 hospitals that stretch from Chicago to Kansas to Texas and mainly in Florida. So we're a big organization. We are, as you are, uh, focused on a quality journey. My task today is to talk about cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And part of the reason is there is a lot of things that have been happening in diabetes during the last two to three years. Uh, we have new guidelines. There's new evidence for how we should be treating patients with diabetes. And so what I want to do is give you the broad overview. There's a lot of data on the slides. You're not expected to memorize it. You have access to all of the slides, and you can go back and refer to those uh, if necessary. So some of those are mainly there for your uh, information. These are my disclosures. All my honorarii actually go to my hospital, uh, which is a nonprofit, but must obviously be making a profit from the number of talks that uh, I give. Uh, here are our learning objectives. I won't go over those uh, in detail. So we're going to hit the ground running. I'm going to talk about the burden of diabetes, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, at some length about the new cardiovascular uh, safety data for new diabetes drugs uh, and how those feed into the new guidelines for diabetes. Talk a little bit about individualizing therapy and then assessing quality. So you don't need to be reminded, but I'm going to anyway, that type 2 diabetes is epidemic in our country. We have over 30 million people who are affected by the disease. This is a growing problem, 35 million people in the next 20 uh, years. Most cases are type 2 diabetes, and we have a large population at risk who have prediabetes. We care about diabetes because of the chronic complications. These include cardiovascular disease, microvascular disease, eye damage, kidney damage. It is the third leading cause of death, if you can count contributing causes. Uh, so it's a huge, huge uh, morbidity and mortality issue. And we spend $327 billion, with a B, dollars per year in 2017 on diabetes, with the majority of that going for direct medical costs. So this is obviously a very important public health as well as economic issue. Most of the costs of diabetes are associated with the chronic complications and things like cardiovascular disease and stroke. Two-thirds of patients with uh, diabetes will ultimately die of a cardiovascular complication. So our goal is to try to reduce this number and reduce the morbidity and mortality associated with macro and microvascular complications. Type 2 diabetes, independent of any other risk factor, is associated with a two to four fold higher risk of cardiovascular outcomes. And these uh, graphs are a little bit hard to see, but basically they say that's true regardless of your age and it's true uh, in association with the number of cardiovascular risk factors you have. So obviously the more cardiovascular risk factors you have, the more your risk. That's true uh, kind of across the board. These are data from a Swedish study where they have very good health care and they've documented over the years the mortality associated with uh, diabetes. And you can see the good news is that the uh, standardized death rates, uh, the incidence rates, are going down uh, over the last so, 20 to 30 years or so. That's really good. This is for patients without diabetes. And if we look at patients with diabetes, rates are going down as well. But what you'll notice is that we have done nothing 
to change this risk of diabetes. So even though the rates have gone down, there's still a two-fold increased risk of death in patients with type 2 diabetes. So that's both good news and bad news. What's it look like in the states? These are data from uh, Medicare and from a variety of other sources, and they suggest that we're improving care in the United States as well. So deaths from acute MI uh, going down, stroke going down, amputations are going down, and stage renal disease staying pretty uh, steady. So we've been making progress over the last couple of days, uh, decades with diabetes care. Good news, right? Not exactly. The problem is that we have so many more people with diabetes. So although the rates have been coming down over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, the number of patients with diabetes has doubled during that period of time. So the actual burden of cardiovascular disease, heart disease or stroke, coronary heart disease, other heart disease problems is increasing. So this is becoming an increased problem for our clinics and for our um, economy. The other thing that I think gets overlooked quite frequently with diabetes is the risk for heart failure. Risk for heart failure is two to four-fold higher among patients with diabetes. That's independent of any other uh, condition that predisposes to uh, diabetes or, or heart failure. And this is data from the, uh, 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 the Framingham Heart Study. It simply indicates that as you get older, your risk for heart failure goes up, but if you have diabetes, that risk stays two to three times higher. Heart failure is actually one of the first manifestations of type 2 diabetes-related cardiovascular disease. This is a study in the UK. Here's uh, peripheral artery disease. 14% of people had heart failure as the initial manifestation versus uh, only about 11% who had a non-fatal MI. So this is overlooked, but it's a very, very common complication of diabetes, and it's a common uh, cause for hospitalization. In fact, it's the most common cause of diabetes-related admissions. This is in women in the U.S., uh, and this is in men in the U.S. And you can see that the numbers have been decreasing uh, with better risk factor control uh, over the last few years or so, but uh, risks for heart failure hospitalization still are the leading cause uh, in both men and women. So it's not just heart attacks, it's not just strokes, it's also heart failure that we need to concern ourselves with. When patients have diabetes, uh, the risk to them for mortality and hospitalization is much higher than it is in patients who don't have uh, diabetes. This is death, uh, one-year CV death, and one-year heart failure hospitalization risk. And uh, patients have uh, worse mortality. Uh, Population-based study, 151,000 patients, uh, Medicare population, people with uh, diabetes but without heart failure. Here's people with diabetes and heart failure. This is a huge, huge risk. Uh, this risk of death is very close to some types of cancer. And I don't think people appreciate how serious heart failure is in many cases. So what about diabetes control? Well, if we look at the UK data, we know that the risk of fatal and non-fatal MI is proportionate to the degree of glycemic control. A1Cs that are higher are associated with a higher risk. The same is actually true for heart failure. So higher A1Cs are associated with a higher risk of heart failure. Now, this is sort of epidemiologic data within a large uh, observational study, the UK Prospective Diabetes Study. There are several studies that have aimed to decrease glucose 
levels to more normal levels with the goal of improving outcomes. These include studies called the UK Prospective Diabetes Study, the DCCT, which is a study in patients with type 1 diabetes, and then more recently, Accord Advance in the VA. All studies, uh, all these studies are US studies. All of these studies which have aimed for glycemic control have shown microvascular benefit. None have shown a cardiovascular benefit, and in fact, the Accord study showed an increase in mortality with intensive glycemic control. With long-term follow-up in the UK PDS and the DCCT, there did seem to be a benefit uh, on cardiovascular disease and maybe mortality. But the evidence is actually pretty weak for the macrovascular complications. We know that diabetes control can improve retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, but not so much with the macrovascular complications. So that's really the conundrum. We've stuck with this increased risk for cardiovascular disease, and glycemic control, per se, doesn't fix it. It also does not fix heart failure. This is across uh, all number of the studies that I just talked about. Here's the uh, meta-analysis, the point estimate, and you can see that the relative risk is one. So glycemic control made no difference on risk for heart failure incidence. So we're stuck uh, in terms of our glycemic control targets and what we should be doing if we really want to impact on these meaningful outcomes. It's not like we don't have tools to treat diabetes. Over the last 10, 20 years or so, there's just been an explosion in the number of drugs. We now have 13 classes for the treatment of diabetes. Last week, a new class of medications was just approved, an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist. So we have all sorts of ways to improve glycemic control. Uh, and we know that each of these drugs is associated with some benefits and some risks. Now, the ADA uh, recommends about half a dozen of these as uh, drugs that are to be used in combination with metformin, which is generally our foundation uh, therapy. These include things like sulfonylureas, TZDs, DPP-4 inhibitors, SGLT-2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and even basal insulin. All of these drugs work in different ways, and because type 2 diabetes is associated with multiple metabolic abnormalities, that's quite useful. We can combine these drugs to work on different metabolic abnormalities to improve glycemia. So that's part of the strategy in type 2 diabetes is to get good glycemic control using multiple medications. Now I'm just going to blow through the next few slides because these are, again, for your information on uh, your slides. Uh, these drugs have different mechanisms of action. Uh, they all lower A1C. That's how they were uh, approved. Uh, they have other side effects that in some cases are good, including things like weight loss. Uh, and they all have some side effects that are not so good. Hypoglycemia for drugs like insulin and sulfonylurea. Um, TZDs cause weight gain and uh, uh, a risk for heart failure. Uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with nausea and uh, the SGLT-2 inhibitors with genital mycotic infections. So we're always balancing risk versus benefit. And of course, costs. We have to be cost conscious. Some of our drugs, like metformin, are really cheap. Metformin is actually cheaper than dirt. Did you know that? It's true. I have evidence. I was shopping at our local grocery store, Publix, and there's, they give away metformin for free. And there was a sign uh, that advertised this in the cookie aisle, right below the Chips Ahoy cookies. 
So that's good. And on the same trip uh, with my wife, we went to Home Depot and got some potting soil. And the potting soil is like uh, $4 for a big bag like that. So that proves that metformin is cheaper than dirt. But it really is a very cost-effective and effective medicine. Sulfonylureas are also cheap. Met, um, TZDs are reasonably cheap uh, as well. But the newer drugs, the DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and SGLT-2 inhibitors uh, can be quite expensive. Insulin also can be expensive. Some of the newer insulins, patients, if they bought out of pocket, would be responsible for $1,000 plus per month for their insulin supplies. This has hit the news. This is uh, a big deal. And it's beginning to have an effect on the pricing of insulin uh, with the pharma companies. Now, cardiovascular disease. I told you about the epidemic of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And this came to the forefront in drug development in 2008 with a publication in the New England Journal which suggested that rosiglitazone, a TZD, might be associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, specifically MIs. The FDA looked at that and said, well, that ain't any good. We want to be improving outcomes, not worsening outcomes with uh, our treatments. And so they came up with this guidance for industry for all new drugs that are being developed for the treatment of diabetes to basically rule out an increased risk. They didn't say you had to improve cardiovascular disease in order to register a drug. They just said you had to show you didn't increase risk. So how do you go about doing that? The answer is you enroll lots of patients at high risk in trials. When this guidance was released in 2008, we had maybe 10,000 patients or so in large or long-term outcome trials. Since then, we have over 200,000 patients with diabetes, 28 uh, trials either ongoing or completed, eight different classes of medications. This is actually a great thing because we know a lot more about the safety of our drugs uh, for diabetes. We know a lot more about the new drugs than we knew about the old drugs. We know about it in a prospective way, and we know about it for much longer duration. Uh, I worked on a diabetes drug that was uh, licensed with about 2,400 patients, uh, and about 300 patients had treatment up to a year with these drugs. That's all we had, and that got approved. Nowadays, there are well in excess of 13,000, 15,000 patients in trials, 10, 12 phase three studies, uh, and many of these studies go for at least two years and involve several thousand patients at high risk. The uh, drug companies have done dedicated cardiovascular outcomes studies to prove the safety of drugs. And here are a list of several in the different classes. Uh, on top, the DPP-4 inhibitors, in the middle, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, and the bottom, the SGLT-2 inhibitors. All of these studies had several thousand patients. All of these studies followed patients for at least a couple of years and sometimes up to five or six years. All had adjudicated endpoints of cardiovascular endpoints and looked at other uh, side effects as well. So I'm going to take these one by one. The DPP-4 inhibitors, we've used those for many years, about 15 years now. They lower A1C, great for doing that, low risk of hypoglycemia, weight neutral, uh, and they're really well tolerated. That's probably the most defining feature of this class of medications. Rarely do people have side effects. It's hypersensitive reactions occasionally. There is an increased risk of pancreatitis, that's, uh, and that's in the label. It's fairly rare. And then a couple, and I'll show you the data, are associated with an increased risk for heart failure. There are now five trials uh, with DPP-4 inhibitors. They all are placebo-controlled trials, or usual care. So people either get the DPP-4 inhibitor or usual care. Uh, all of the studies enrolled patients at cardiovascular risk. 
In some cases, such as the allagliptin trial, these are patients who had an acute coronary syndrome. Uh, the TCOS trial with citagliptin had all patients who'd had prior events. None of these studies have showed a benefit. These are the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves for cardiovascular outcomes for MACE, and you can see that the two lines for the placebo and the usual care overlie one another. In a way, this is good news. These studies did what they were intended to do, which is prove the cardiovascular safety of these medications. But we were hoping for some benefit, uh, and there is no benefit uh, to these medications in terms of the cardiovascular outcomes. We didn't look at uh, the uh, microvascular complications here. The same is true with uh, Carmelina, a trial of linagliptin, uh, which is called Trajecta. Um, no effect on MACE uh, or uh, real effect on declining kidney function or hospitalization for heart failure. So all the trials for DPP-4 inhibitors met their primary goal to show that there's no increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, we can't assume that this is that the effects are the same for all the drugs, though, because there was some heterogeneity with respect to heart failure, and I'll show you that in a bit. Uh, they've also been uh, useful for evaluating other potentially beneficial effects of the drugs. There was some decrease in albuminuria in a couple of these trials. And then we have much more precise estimates for rare events, things like pancreatitis. GLP-1 receptor agonists. Uh, a lot of benefits from this class of medications. There are most potent drugs for lowering glucose, even better than basal insulin in multiple trials. They have a low risk for hypoglycemia. They result in usually significant weight loss. Uh, they also decrease blood pressure. There's some effects on the kidneys uh, and potentially some direct uh, beneficial effects. But side effects include uh, their injections, there's nausea and vomit associated with it, there's a warning for pancreatitis risk, and medullary thyroid cancer, a rare kind of cancer that occurs in mice, not so much in humans, as it turns out, because humans don't have GLP-1 receptors in their C cells. Several trials have been conducted with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. I was part of this trial called the LEADER study with liraglutide or Victoza. With this trial, we demonstrated a 13% 14%, reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. That was highly significant. This trial ran almost five years, 9,300 patients. And at the end of the day, we had about 1,300 adjudicated events, so very robust trial. Exenatide once weekly. They also did a very large trial. They had 14,000 patients. The difference here was fewer of their patients had prior cardiovascular disease. So they didn't have as big an effect on uh, MACE, on cardiovascular endpoints. A 9% reduction that was just barely not significant. The hazard ratio uh, was 0.83 to 1, and a p-value of 0.06. Close, but in clinical trials, no cigar. Dulaglutide, Trulicity. They did a study, also a study that lasted uh, a little bit over five years, uh, a study comparing dulaglutide versus usual care. They had about 9,900 patients. Um, not everybody in this study had pre-existing cardiovascular disease, and that was one of the interesting aspects of this study. There were patients with more primary prevention. Overall, they showed about a 12% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events, very similar to what we showed with uh, in the leader study with liraglutide. And there was a reduction in uh, risk for non-fatal stroke that was significant as well. Finally, uh, two trials with semaglutide. Semaglutide is a once-weekly uh, GLP-1 agonist. It's probably the most potent GLP-1 agonist. And uh, the sustained six study, which was a small pre-registration study, 3,300 patients for uh, 
two years, demonstrated a 26% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. The Pioneer 6 study, which is a very similar trial using oral semaglutide, this drug that was just approved, also showed a 21% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events that was not inferior to usual care and but was not superior because of the small number of events in this relatively short trial. They have an ongoing robust cardiovascular outcome trial in about 7,500 patients uh, that has just recently started. Because of the data that were produced with the leader study with liraglutide, the FDA reviewed that, and there's an additional label claim so that uh, liraglutide is indicated uh, to reduce the risk for uh, major adverse cardiovascular events in patients with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. So far, it's the only one of the GLP-1 agonists that have that claim. I'm going to turn now to the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, these drugs also have a lot of uh, benefit. Uh, they reduce A1C, not quite as much as a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Low risk for hypoglycemia. They have some weight loss associated with them. They do decrease blood pressure. Uh, they have some positive effects on the kidneys. Uh, but they have some risks as well. Genital mycotic infections, uh, yeast infections are the most common uh, side effects. They can cause polyuria and dehydration. Uh, there uh, is very rare episodes of uh, diabetic ketoacidosis associated with these drugs. Uh, and one drug was associated with fractures and an increased risk for amputations. It's probably not a, a true finding because it hasn't been replicated. The cardiovascular outcome studies with the SGLT2 inhibitors, all similar in design, all compared the drug versus usual care. Uh, in the EMPA-REG outcome study, all patients had established cardiovascular disease. The other two studies, mix of patients with established cardiovascular disease and risk factors. The EMPA-REG outcome study was the first study that showed a benefit on reducing MACE. Uh, and it was just amazing for all of us in the diabetes audience. 14% reduction in heart attack, stroke, and, non and fatal cardiovascular events. Uh, and a, an effect that was apparent very early on after treating uh, with uh, empagliflozin, you can see here. Not only did empagliflozin decrease MACE, it had a couple of other benefits. It decreased cardiovascular death by 28% and risk for heart failure hospitalization by 35%. All of these endpoints got a standing ovation, which is just unheard of in our medical meetings, uh, but we were really very excited by the results. So the question was, is it just empagliflozin or is it other members of the class? Other members include canagliflozin. They showed an identical reduction in MACE, 14%. They showed an almost identical reduction in heart failure hospitalization. They didn't seem to have the same benefit on cardiovascular death, but the overall profile was also very good there. Canagliflozin just did another study with patients with end state or chronic kidney disease. Uh, and in that study, they demonstrated that there was a 30% reduction in progression of chronic kidney disease to end-stage renal disease, doubling of serum creatinine, uh, or need for renal replacement therapy. And because of that, they got an indication for prevention of uh, progression of chronic kidney disease in patients with diabetes. The first drugs that have been uh, gotten that indication since the ACEs and the ARBs 20 years ago. 
finally, uh, declaritinib with dapagliflozin, also a reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization, uh, about a 17% reduction for that endpoint. They didn't quite make it on uh, MACE. That was a co-primary endpoint. So across the board, there was a reduction in MACE in all of these trials. In one trial, it was not significant. A reduction in cardiovascular death uh, and uh, reductions in heart failure hospitalization. As a result of these trials, two of the SGLT2 inhibitors, empagliflozin and canagliflozin, have been uh, granted label indications to reduce risk for either cardiovascular death or MACE, depending on the, the drug, in patients with diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. Now, uh, all of the studies with the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors, most of the studies have included both patients with and without uh, prior disease. It turns out that for both the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors, most of the benefit is realized in patients who have pre-existing disease. If you look at the benefit in those who have just risk factors, it doesn't seem like the drugs reduce risk. This may be because of the heightened risk uh, in this patient population of people who've had pre-existing disease. But that's the explanation for why the label indications are only for those with diabetes and cardiovascular, pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So what we've seen is all the DPP-4 inhibitor trials were neutral, no risk, no uh, benefit. Uh, of the GLP-1 trials, two showed uh, were neutral, and four have showed uh, a benefit. Uh, poor albiglutide, they were taken off the market, not because they didn't work, they did, but because they weren't selling enough uh, and didn't, it was not as effective on lowering weight and glucose. It actually had the biggest effect on reducing cardiovascular outcomes. It's the only time I've been to a presentation of a trial when they actually advertise, if anybody would like to buy our drug, please see us up at the front. Uh, and then we saw benefits with all of the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. Let me turn now to heart failure. In all of these trials, uh, heart failure hospitalization has been an adjudicated endpoint. In the light blue, which is really hard to see on this screen, is the rates of MI, and in the dark blue is the rate for heart failure hospitalization. In most of these trials, the risk for heart failure hospitalization is almost as high as it was for MI. In some cases, uh, as a study with uh, linagliptin, it was actually higher. So this is an event that happens a lot in patients with uh, diabetes who have risk factors. In the DPP-4 studies, uh, one study with uh, saxagliptin showed an increased risk of heart failure that was significant. And there was another study, the examined study with allagliptin, which showed a trend in the direction for more heart failure hospitalization. On the other hand, the other two studies with citagliptin and linagliptin showed no risk or even a slightly reduced risk. As a consequence of this, there are label warnings for both saxagliptin and allagliptin that these drugs may increase risk for heart failure hospitalization. This is also translated into recommendations from the European Society of Cardiology for use of DPP-4 inhibitors in heart failure. Uh, and they differentiate between citagliptin and linagliptin, which can be used in patients with heart failure safely, they say, and saxagliptin and allagliptin, which should be avoided in patients with heart failure. GLP-1 receptor agonists in heart failure. Across the uh, six or seven trials now, it looks like there's a very small benefit to reduce risk for heart failure hospitalization. In none of the studies, uh, except for the Harmony study, was this actually a significant 
uh, endpoint by itself. But if you pool all this data together uh, with uh, about uh, almost 60,000 patients, you see about a 9% reduction in risk for heart failure hospitalization. So nowhere near as effective at heart failure hospitalization as the GLP-1 receptor agonist, but still a trend in the right direction. So uh, for the, from the ESC, they say the GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, have a neutral effect more or less and could be considered for diabetes treatment in patients with heart failure, but not for management of heart failure. Finally, I talked about the data with the SGLT2 inhibitors, 35, 33, and 27% reduction in hospitalization uh, for heart failure with the three uh, different drugs. Uh, so a consistent and very robust effect for this very important outcome. There's one other study that's relevant, and that's a study that was just presented at the European, Association, or European so uh, Society for Cardiology, ESC, in September called the DAPA heart failure study. So in this study, about 2,500, uh, about 5,000 patients, almost 5,000 patients with heart failure. In the other trials, only about 10 to 20% had pre-existing heart failure. In this study, everybody had pre-existing heart failure, randomized to usual care or uh, dapagliflozin, and they were followed for a um, couple of years. What they found was a 26% reduction in cardiovascular death, hospitalization for heart failure, or an urgent or heart failure visit, an ER visit or a clinic visit where people needed to be diuresed. So this is very consistent with the findings from the cardiovascular outcome studies, but now applied to people who specifically have diabetes and heart failure. Actually, I misspoke. Patients in this trial, about 60% of them had diabetes, but not everybody had diabetes. And it turns out that the drug worked just as well in patients who did not have diabetes as those who did have diabetes. Now, this is a really interesting finding. These people don't have hyperglycemia. So how is this drug working? The answer is not through glucose. This drug has effects on the kidney, it's changing the renal hemodynamics, and we think there might be effects on the cardio cardiac um, metabolism uh, as well. We don't exactly know how this works, but clearly it's independent of having hyperglycemia or reductions in hyperglycemia. A really important uh, and interesting finding. Um, in uh, the three uh, trials with the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, what we found was interesting and different uh, than uh, the cardiovascular outcomes, which is that the reduction in heart failure risk was seen both in patients who had a history of heart failure as well as those who did not have a history of heart failure. So it's not only effective at secondary prevention in patients with heart failure, these drugs are effective at primary prevention of heart failure. So a really important finding as well. So the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association uh, released joint guidelines. Three RCTs have shown significant reduction in atherosclerotic events and heart failure with SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, most patients had established atherosclerotic disease. Uh, there's primary prevention in these populations. So they recommend to their cardiology colleagues that patients uh, be started on SGLT2 inhibitors. Similarly, the, SGL, the ESC recommends SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in patients with heart failure for prevention of recurrent events. Turning now to glycemic management. 
Uh, ADA for many years has recommended an A1C target of less than 7% for most adults, but if they can have more stringent goals if people are young, they don't have a lot of comorbidities, or less stringent goals, people who are older have a limited life expectancy. Uh, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists have different goals, tighter goals, but it's the same concept. You adjust the goals uh, up or down depending upon patients' comorbidities and, and other factors. These factors include things like risk for hypoglycemia, disease duration, life expectancy, comorbidities, vascular complications, even things like patient preferences and resources. And uh, a schema like this will help you set appropriate A1C targets, more stringent or less stringent. We don't need to set stringent targets for people who are going to have a year or so to uh, live. And conversely, we should be very much more aggressive in younger people with diabetes who have potentially decades of exposure to hyperglycemia ahead of them. The ADA has shifted their focus now. It used to be sort of a stepwise uh, approach. It still is to some degree, but we really want a quality circle in diabetes management. So we're assessing patient characteristics, uh, considering factors like uh, their targets, their comorbidities, creating a shared decision-making uh, plan with them, uh, agreeing on that management plan, implementing the plan, monitoring, and then uh, seeing how it goes, and then feeding back uh, with continuous uh, uh, cycles to try to improve outcomes in patients with diabetes. I mentioned we have several drugs in the treatment guidelines, but really our guidelines are now focused on these comorbidities. So patients with established cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease uh, should have oops, uh, a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor if atherosclerotic disease predominates. But if they have heart failure or chronic kidney disease, we're now thinking that an SGLT-2 inhibitor should be the drug of first choice. The reasons for this are we're reducing events with these drugs, we're reducing progression to heart failure, and we're reducing chronic kidney disease. What are the barriers to managing diabetes and CVD? Well, one of them is that many of our patients with diabetes feel pretty good. They don't see the need for all of these medications. They don't like adding on other medications. So we're thinking, we're talking to them about events that are going to be happening in the future in prevention. That's a hard conversation with uh, many people who feel pretty good. Um, so there's uh, adverse events of uh, treatment that sometimes impact on adherence. Uh, and you know with adherence, people uh, are not adherent if they don't understand what the medication's for, they don't understand the risks, or if there are financial barriers. Clinician-based, uh, many clinicians are not comfortable with injectable medications, our GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, and they also don't advance therapy uh, fast enough when people are um, not at goal. And moreover, these new guidelines focusing on cardiovascular outcomes are a whole new thing for uh, our primary care colleagues to consider. And then finally, there are kind of externally-based barriers. Access to healthcare, treatment costs, insurance costs. Insurance is always changing which medicines they uh, cover, and it's tracking patients in chronic disease. You guys are familiar with all of these uh, issues in uh, healthcare systems. Obviously, we, measure, we need to measure quality of care because you can't change what you don't uh, measure. And when you do measure it, you can improve outcomes. Several studies have indicated this in diabetes. These are three studies with Medicaid populations. 
uh, one in California, one in Michigan, and one in New York, showing not only was there a uh, monetary savings with improved diabetes management, uh, where about 40% of their Medicaid population was poorly controlled, but there was also improved outcomes. It's hard to see these, but these are cardiovascular uh, outcomes. They didn't project terribly well. So we're improving outcomes by improving uh, the process of care and improving uh, uh, access to care. HEDIS, of course, has several uh, things to measure with uh, comprehensive diabetes care. A1C, uh, poor glycemic control, uh, eye exams, nephropathy, uh, blood pressure control, and even lipid control. The diabetes outcome is looking at those with poor control or A1C above 9%, where I think most of us would agree those people are not in great shape. This is not an uncommon problem. In the United States, as data from the NHANES, it's estimated that there are 5 million patients with an A1C above 9%. Even if we just focused on this population, we could make a huge difference in uh, outcomes as well as costs of diabetes care uh, in the United States. Retinopathy, we recommend eye exams. Yearly, if uh, patients have had diabetes for a while, every two years uh, or so if they have new diagnosis of diabetes and they've had a normal uh, exam. We should be measuring uh, the EGFR and uh, checking urine for protein to check for nephropathy. The importance of this is we have drugs that can prevent progression, ACEs and ARBs, as well as the new class of drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, we should be checking for their feet, uh, doing a neurologic evaluation, checking for peripheral neuropathy, as well as evaluating uh, footwear. I had a patient in my clinic uh, many years ago, uh, and I was doing my usual foot exam, and uh, I asked her, you know, do you still feel okay in your feet? She said, oh, yeah, I feel everything in my feet. And I said, do you ever walk around uh, the house barefoot? And she said, nope, never do that, I always wear my shoes. And I said, could you possibly explain to me why you have a thumbtack embedded in the bottom of your foot? And I pulled out a red thumbtack, which she did not know was on, in her foot because she didn't feel it, and she did, in fact, run around the house <laughs> without her shoes on. Uh, so I think I've helped more people with that anecdote uh, than I helped her because I always tell patients about that, and everybody's hair stands on end when they think about having a thumbtack in the bottom of their foot. And as soon as I tell them that story, they're, like, looking at the bottom of their feet. This is good. Diabetes is about self-management. It's about assessing yourself. You're welcome to use that anecdote here in practice. Uh, statin therapy. Statins have been shown to reduce risk for cardiovascular disease in patients with diabetes. All adults uh, should be on a statin, either a low or high dose. How do we accomplish this? Diabetes is the ultimate in a team sport. We have our primary care physicians, we have specialists, endocrinologists, we have diabetes educators. These are a great resource to both providers and healthcare systems. They know about the nutrition, exercise, medication, complication, and monitoring. And they can teach patients in ways that the primary care provider can't do because of limitations on knowledge and time. We need to engage patients in education. In our particular education program, we have, uh, I think, six or eight diabetes educators. We provide most of the ADA-certified education programs in uh, Orlando. And our patients, if your A1C is above 8%, they are reducing A1C by over 1%, almost 1.5%, just by going through education. As people are taking care of themselves better, they take their medicines more often, uh, they follow a better diet. 
Other specialties, mental health, social workers, important for patients with chronic disease. Pharmacists, a really invaluable resource. People have questions about the side effects of medications. People have questions about how to take the medications. And pharmacists are, are great, and they're very knowledgeable. The problem is communicating among all of the team members. We don't have great systems for engaging everybody who is not in, is part of a single system. So even though my pharmacist colleagues out at Publix are great pharmacists, and I know them personally because I go in there and get my own prescriptions, uh, I, you know, it's hard to talk to them. They don't have access to the same sort of information I have in my healthcare system. So it's not a great healthcare uh, system for encouraging team approach. What can we do? Well, uh, in uh, practices, we need to use uh, the information that we can access through medical records. This is a chart of somebody's body weight and their A1C uh, over a period of a couple, three years or so. <coughs> this is very uh, useful for tracking quality, tra tracking progress. You can see people who are uh, out of goal or trends that you may, may not be apparent if you look at A1Cs every once in a while. Our problem is, we love our patients. We believe our patients. You know, so we'll come back and they'll, their A1C will be above target. Let's say it's, you want their target to be 7% and they're at 7.6%. But I just got back from vacation. We were on a cruise. We had such good food and I really didn't do very well with my diet. Uh, and you say, okay, well, you know, get back on your medicines, you know, go back on the diet and exercise and, you know, I'm sure it'll be better next time. So they come back and uh, it's now December and yeah, the holidays were really tough. It was Thanksgiving, and, you know, we had a great meal, and, you know, okay, well, go ahead. And then, you know, March comes around, and, uh, you know, the A1C is still 7, and it's creeping up or so. And, well, it was Aunt Tilly's birthday, so we had a big birthday party, and I ran out of my medicines. You know, you want to believe your patients. You want to, you know, listen to what they say, and you want them to try. But our problem is that this uh, leads to therapeutic inertia. And if we look at the trends over time, we can really see how people are worsening or maybe how people are staying the same. So we should use these tools. We can always use, also use these tools for individual providers to see how many people are getting eye exams, foot exams, and how that quality is changing, in this case, quarter by quarter. We're shifting from volume-based care to value-based care and uh, population health management. Diabetes is an excellent disease to uh, do this in because, uh, number one, we have so many people with diabetes. Number two, it's so costly. And number three, we actually have things that we can do that make uh, a big difference. So type 2 diabetes, complex pathogenesis. We have a number of glucose-lowering options, 15, 13 now really hard for primary care docs to understand how to choose medications, which ones to use in which uh, situations. Our foundation therapy is still lifestyle and metformin. Diabetes education is critical. Beyond that, we have several options, and we should start targeting those options based upon comorbidities. So people with cardiovascular disease should have a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor, because that will reduce risk for recurrent heart attacks strokes, and cardiovascular death. People with heart failure uh, should have an SGLT2 inhibitor on board. People with chronic kidney disease probably also should have an SGLT2 inhibitor on board. We have to weigh the risks and benefits of treatment, uh, and don't forget the usual cardiovascular risk factors, blood pressure control, and lipid control. 
I spend a lot of time talking about heart failure because I think it's an underappreciated complication of uh, diabetes, and there are now things that have a major impact. These new diabetes drugs are as effective at reducing hospitalization for heart failure and death from heart failure as are uh, the drugs that are specifically designed for heart failure, things like uh, Entresto, uh, for example. So uh, I tell you all this by uh, way of saying we can do something in diabetes to improve outcomes, but we need to make sure we understand what the effective therapies are. We need to integrate those therapies into our risk populations, those people that have pre-existing cardiovascular disease, so that we can reduce and improve outcomes in those patients. Um, so that's uh, going to conclude our talk. I want to say thank you from uh, my team. Um,